I invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to Amos chapter 3. I'd imagine that uh, a great many of us would find great encouragement and comfort from Romans chapter 8, verse number 31, where it tells us if God is for us, then who could be against us? Well, Amos chapter 3 gives us a grim mirror image of that reality. And that is, if God is against us, then who can be for us? The solemn words that begin this section of Amos summon the people of Israel to hear the judgment of the Lord that has just been spoken to them. Our text this morning from chapter 3 will confront us with the issues of complacency and arrogance. It will attack the gulf that often exists between what we profess and who we actually are. So now that Amos has the attention of the people, he proceeds to deliver three powerful messages. Each message begins with the phrase, hear this word. You'll see that is the beginning of chapter 3, it's the beginning of chapter 4, and it begins chapter 5. By using this phrase, he's reminding them they, that they weren't listening just to another man making a speech, but rather they were listening to a prophet declaring the living word of God. It is a great privilege to have God speak to us through his word, but it also comes with great responsibility. And if we don't open our hearts to, to hear the word of our Lord, and not just to hear it, but then to obey it, then we are in danger of hardening our hearts and incurring his wrath. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So here's the scene. God has just pronounced judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. He just pronounced judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. And he just pronounced judgment on six surrounding Gentile nations. Now he, he's going to focus on explaining more fully why the people of Israel were being condemned and judged. There are three major truths about God's judgment that we see here in chapter 3. And for those that have a short attention span, I'm going to hook you up this morning. I'm going to give you those three major truths right off the bat. Truth number one is that God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is fair. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Truth number two is that God's judgment is inevitable. So God's judgment is fair, and God's judgment is inevitable. That's in verses 3 through 8. And then the third major truth is that God's judgment is comprehensive. God's judgment is comprehensive. Verses 9 through the end of the chapter, verse number 15. So God's judgment is fair, God's judgment is inevitable, and God's judgment is comprehensive. Now for the rest of you that want to dig in for a little bit, and hear how this all plays out. And then let's begin in verse number 1 and 2. It says here, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. 
You only, you alone have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That phrase, sons of Israel, is referring to both kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It is the entire family for whom God rescued out of Egypt. In fact, the Exodus event is central in the Old Testament. It's central, but it also points to a greater Exodus. The greater Exodus, which would be accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and would ultimately be vindicated through his resurrection. And so here we see that the fairness of God's judgment is embodied in two important words or phrases in this text. The first is the word chosen. You find it there in verse number two. It says, you only have I chosen. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you have the ESV, it, it, might, it renders that word, uh, you alone have I known. That's what yours says. But that word chosen is a better picture because when it says, uh, you alone have I chosen, it's talking more than just a knowledge about someone or something. It is a word of relationship. It is a covenant term that's being used here. So although Amos never mentions the word covenant in his speeches or in his writing, the, the, the covenant language is, is seen throughout. What God is saying here is that Israel is the only nation with whom he is in a covenant relationship with, which means this next part is even more striking because of the reality that he's in a covenant relationship with the people that he's addressing. Because the next part says in verse number two, it says, therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. So, so here in Amos, God is going to reverse the exodus. God is going to send his people back into exile. Now this, of course, does not mean that God reverses his covenant rather this is a judgment within the covenant it's a judgment within the covenant which removes those who claim to belong but don't and then cleanses and purifies those that remain in psalm chapter 89 the same word that's used here for punish is used to, to make a similar point in psalm 89 verses 32 through 34 it says then i will punish their transgressions with a rod, and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. So first of all, we see in these two verses how, how the judgment from God is, is fair, now this next section, we're going to discover how his judgment is inevitable. Amos asks a series of rhetorical questions as a way of forcing his listeners to engage with the truth. And he does so in order to show a pattern of event and consequence. And this is a visual demonstration of truth. And that truth is that judgment comes from God. Notice what he says, pick up in verse number three. Here's the rhetorical questions. Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? 
does the young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Verse 5, does the bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does the trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So, so Amos makes it clear that the judgment spoken about in chapters 1 and 2 are inescapable. They're unavoidable. But he also makes it clear, and this is very important, that these judgments or, or declarations are actually also announcing salvation, or at least the opportunity for salvation. The lion roars and the trumpet blasts. Those are the voice of God calling his people unto repentance. So God reveals his plan to the prophets, not only as the guarantee of its certainty, but also as an opportunity for those that hear to repent before his judgment comes. So, so the proper response to the message is to allow the fear of the Lord to lead us into repentance. So it's in hearing the word, experiencing conviction, and then allowing that conviction to lead us to a place and a point of repentance in our own lives. So, so God's judgment is fair. His judgment is inevitable. But I also want you to realize that his judgment is completely comprehensive. The Israelites set a horrible, evil example before the world. Their sins were so shocking that Amos called the surrounding nations to witness the, the wicked behavior of Israel's citizens. Keep in mind, it is that Israel professed to know and to obey the Lord. Therefore, when their behavior differed so much from what they professed to their neighbors, then their neighbors were, were shocked at, at such a hypocritical point of view or way of living. Makes us wonder, how can a people who claim to know the Lord and possess his holy word, yet do the very opposite of what they professed and what the Lord's word commanded from them. We need not ask Israel that question. We can simply ask ourselves. How could we be guilty of doing such a thing ourselves to have the the living word of God available to us to, to claim and to profess that we believe in God's holy word and then yet live a lifestyle that totally contradicts what his word calls us to do or who he calls us to be. In the eyes of the world, the Israelites were nothing but hypocrites, far worse than the surrounding heathen nations pick up in verse number nine. It says, proclaim on the citadels of Ashdod 
and on the citadels in the land of Egypt, and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great turmoil within her, and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the corner of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, for on the day uh, I will punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altars will be cut off, and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. I mean, Israel was experiencing a complete breakdown in society. And in fact, breakdown of society is simply an outward expression of an, of an interpersonal loss of holiness. So, so when, when the nation begins to lose its citizens and their personal holiness, then that inward reality begins to manifest itself outwardly, and that's a breakdown of civilization, a breakdown of a nation. One might just look at our own nation, per se, and see our own breakdown as a nation. And we can simply trace that back to a lack of personal holiness in God's children. To fully embrace God's calling out of our lives. To fully immerse ourselves into the living word of God. And, and, and to from fully completely living out his word as he commands us to do. And it's because of that that we are now experiencing the wickedness and the sinfulness on a heightened level in our own nation. I'm telling you that there's no legislation that will ever change it or correct it. What needs to happen is for the children of God, we need to humble ourselves, repent before the Father, confess our sins, turn our backs from our old way of living and run after what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. I'm going back to verses 13 and 14 real fast. It says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God and God of hosts. Then he says in verse 14, For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. So Amos now turns his attention to the altars. Uh, the altars were a symbol of corporate worship. In fact, he's introducing a theme that he's going to more fully develop when we get to chapter 5. And quite simply, what he's saying is that external forms of worship are worthless if personal and corporate holiness is lacking. Did you catch that? External forms of worship are worthless if there isn't a matching internal, 
personal holiness that is growing and developing. Which means we can run the danger of assembling ourselves together with people during a worship service and thinking that we're doing okay when in reality we've abandoned the pursuit of personal holiness years ago and we're not experiencing any growth and maturity as a result of that. And that's a problem. And so we need to pursue personal holiness and to ignore and defy such a holy and righteous God ultimately is to forfeit his protection and that is symbolized by the horns of the altar being cut off there in verse number 14b. In reality, their bogus religion would prove powerless to save them from the judgment of God. And God's judgment upon Israel was utterly devastating. And so it will be when Jesus Christ comes back and when he returns to execute his perfect judgment on all of mankind. Every city, every nation will be judged by the mighty hand of God. Not just every city and every nation, but every single human being who has ever lived will have to stand before God in judgment. Are you ready for that day? Are you prepared in this moment? Because if you're not, then now's the time to deal with it. Today's the day to get right with God. And we're going to see this theme play out over and over in this chapter. It's not uh, enough just to say you believe something or to go through the routines of some spiritual activity if there's not a, a true connection in your heart and life with the words that you're saying. Old church, like, this church needs you to, to, to humble yourself and, and to be right with the Father. This church needs me and the other pastors on stuff to, to humble ourselves so that we're right before God. This community is in desperate need of knowing who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ can do in their lives. And the great commandment tells us to go and to tell, to get out there and to share the good news. It doesn't tell us to wait and hope and pray that they'll just show up on their own. We're to be active in the sharing the gospel into the lives of our community. And so, like, that's why I said earlier, this is the most important time of the whole week. Only to be followed up what we do on Wednesday nights. Man, the gathering together of the Christian community to worship God, to receive insight and instruction from his word, to have accountability one to another, to laugh together, to cry together, to pray together, to sing together. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, this is something that we ought never to miss. And congratulations, you're here today, so you... But will you be here next week? Where were you last week? In two weeks from now, where will you be? Man, when will, will loving the Word of God, loving the church, when will that become a priority in the church again? I hope it's soon. 
I'll give my life and labor uh, uh, of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church. Will you give your life in service to the King of Kings? Not just receive salvation for yourself so that you can be good, so that you can get to heaven when you die. That's a beautiful thing. But there's so much more to salvation than just a, a final resting place. What we do today, what you do this afternoon, what you're going to do tomorrow, my prayer is that you'll love Jesus more and more every single day. And today we are especially blessed because in speaking of Jesus, we get to kind of connect with Jesus in a, in a special way today. Because today's the day that we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. We're going to participate in communion, however you want to call it. We're about to do this. And here's the beautiful thing about taking the Lord's Supper. Because in this moment, we are giving a public testimony. We are identifying ourselves one to another. We're one in the family of God. Where We're identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ where we're associating our lives with his life. He gave his life up so that we might be able to live, not just live the way we want to live, not just do the things that we want to do, but to do the things and to live the way that God has called us to so that he could be glorified in and through all of our lives. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which means in a moment we're going to come forward, those of you that are mentally and spiritually prepared, which, I mean, there's great warnings in Scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians. Read through 1 Corinthians. You'll see Paul identify it. In fact, let's just go there. 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 11. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, it's like we always want to get to what Jesus said. I feel like sometimes we don't do enough time preparing ourselves to fully partake of this. Paul gives us very specific instructions. They're so specific. I believe that they're so clear. They don't need me to expound upon them. Listen to what he says and see if there's any doubt. In chapter 11, uh, verse number 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and, and the blood of the Lord. Then he says in verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Oh, that's not oversleeping. That's dead. They're dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Before we partake of communion together, we need to enter into a moment to make sure that you are in a proper place so that you don't come up here and you don't grab a cup or, or take the bread and, and partake of it in a manner that's unworthy. Let me help simplify that. Let's deal with sin. First and foremost, you better be a child of God 
in order to come and take these elements because I believe that this is for God's family. And it's not about being a, a member of First Baptist Kingsland. It's about being a member of the family of God. So if, you're, if you belong to him, then that's the first criteria. It's open for you. But, but now that you belong to him, although it's open to you, doesn't mean that you necessarily should be partaking of it today. Ask yourself, are you living rightly before the Father? Are there things that need to be addressed in your life? Sins that need to be confessed? Repentance that needs to be expressed? Look, I don't know what it is in your life, but you, you know. And here's the deal. I'm fully convinced that in this moment, if you were to bow your head and close your eyes, and if you were to honestly and truthfully say, Holy Spirit, show me. Show me. Is there something in my life that needs to change? If so, what is it? And when you identify that, then make a call, a confession to God to pursue that, to chase after that, asking for his strength so that you can live a life of obedience. May you take of this in a manner that is worthy so that and then we go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul says in verse number 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in just a moment, we're going to proclaim the Lord's death together. But before we do that, I want to ask you to close your head, close your eyes and bow your head. Yes, those that are helping us uh, with the elements to make their way up here rather quickly, please. And in this moment, before we start hearing music played or anything like that, I want to encourage you just to spend some time asking God what needs to happen in your life.